Amen. You guys grab a seat for me. I'm put this down here. So if you got a Bible, why don't you go to Genesis uh, chapter 30, 37. That's where we're going to start, at least. Uh, the last several weeks, we've been talking about, um, I guess, basically just different objections that people in your culture have to following Jesus. And the first thing we talked about was just flat-out atheism, trying to, say, trying to prove that God just simply does not exist. And after that, we talked about universalism, that it really doesn't matter which religion that you happen to claim that you're all going to end up in the same place. And we kind of threw that one out the window, too. Uh, last week, I'm blanking. What did we talk about last week? Pluralism. Poopoo water. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah, we did that. And uh, today we're doing a different one. This one's more of a philosophical thing that, that I hear people say, and I don't even think they know that it's like a philosophical statement that has been said for hundreds of years. And there's been books and books and books written on this thing, and people on both sides of the argument argue that, and, and, it, and it really stems from a kind of an early misunderstanding of who God is. And it's called the problem of evil. The problem of evil. All right? That's what we're talking about tonight. So the deal is, um, we had a, there was a... a, a Typhoon, right, in the Philippines last week. And it killed like, well, the original estimates were like 10,000 people. And since then, it's kind of been dropped down to more around 2,500, 3,000 people died in a typhoon. And after that kind of sort of thing, people are like, where's God? Where's God in that? And why would God allow a typhoon to slam into this little island and kill a whole bunch of people? And then just like just today, my phone, if you had Twitter, I don't know if like, I don't know why Twitter does this to me, but every once in a while, Twitter, Twitter will uh, uh, send me a message about some big news thing. It arbitrarily happens like once every three weeks. I don't understand. But today it sent me one letting me know that there was a shooter in another school again, this time in Pittsburgh. He'd shot like three people and they were searching for him or something. And my phone blows up while I'm writing this message telling me that there's some guy who's chosen to go shoot some more people in a school. Where is God in that? Like in 2004, there was a, there was a tsunami that hit um, the Indian Ocean rim and uh, about a quarter million people died. Quarter million people. The population of the United States of America is not a lot bigger than that. Not a lot. It wasn't a quarter million. Yeah, a quarter of a million. I got a zero stuck on there. I just made that up in my head. Just to scratch what I said, our population is quite a lot, lot bigger than 250,000. Huntsville, that's what I meant to say. Huntsville's, are, what, aren't we like around 200,000? Isn't Huntsville about 200,000? We're bigger than that. Three? We're a quarter million? So this entire population of Huntsville was wiped out in 2004 in a tsunami. Where's God in that? A reporter after that um, made this statement. He said, uh, looking at the destruction during the Indian Ocean uh, realm, he said, if God is God, he's not good. And if God is good, then he's not God. Not after all this. Did you catch that? That if God is God and he allowed all of this to happen, then clearly he's not a good God. Or if, if God is good, then he's not much of a God because he should have stopped this. 
And this reporter, like a whole bunch of other people, sat there, sat and placed blame directly on, on God and said, why'd you do this? Why would you do this? And stuff like this hits closer to home too. Like my mom was diagnosed with cancer when I was a junior in high school. Where's God in that? What's the point of that? Some of your families are in utter destruction. Where's God in that? And I know for me, and when I was junior in high school, man, when, when my family started falling apart and things just got nuts, I asked that question. Because surely if God is all-powerful and he's good, then he could have done something about that. He could have stopped this from happening. This seems pointless and stupid. What is the point of this? Have you ever asked that? It seems as though in situations like that, that either God isn't all-powerful or he's not good. But either way, people that hold to this problem of evil perspective and it really trips them up, either way, it doesn't matter. Either God isn't there at all, or if he is, he's not trustworthy. He's not a God they want to believe in. We did that survey a few weeks ago, right? And uh, five people in the room, five people in the room answered the question um, positively. They, they, They said yes to the question, does the existence of evil provide evidence that God doesn't exist? And five people said yes. So there was, there were five people in the room the other night who, who basically, whether they knew it or not, were subscribed to this problem of evil perspective. That because there's suffering in the world, that means that God just simply can't exist. Tonight, I want to tell you that that's just not true. Now, from the authority of God's word and is the experience in my own life, students, that's just simply not true. So look with me in Genesis chapter 37. That's where we're going to start. We're going to start making our way around scripture. We're going to look at a different, different, some different stories in the way that God shows up and is moving and is active in a bunch of different circumstances. We're going to try to figure out where is God in all of this mess. Okay? So in Genesis chapter 37, we find the story of a man named Joseph. This isn't like Mary and Joseph, Joseph. This is Old Testament Joseph. And Joseph had some brothers, and uh, he was a little bit annoying and had some visions where he basically um, <laughs> had these dreams where he was going to be exalted above his brothers. He's going to be more important than them. And that didn't really sit real well with him. He's the baby of the family. And uh, so one day he, he, goes, he goes and checks on him in the field, and he's going to check on things because his dad sends him out there. And, um, and they, he's, they see him coming, and they plot to kill him, to kill their little baby brother, who is annoying, granted. But still, <laughs> how many of you have annoying siblings? Yeah. How many of you literally plotted to kill your little sibling this week? Put your hand down, you creeper. All right. <laughs> Joseph shows up. He gets up to him. They're like, what's up, Joseph? And they put him in a giant hole in the ground. <laughs> just to wait and see what's going to happen. And then we're going to leave him there and just let him drown or die or whatever. But um, uh, then they had a better idea, right? They see a little caravan coming. And uh, in 26, Judah says to his brothers, what, if we get, what, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. So his brothers agreed. I don't want to kill the guy. Let's just sell him. Okay. So the Midianite merchants came by. His brothers pulled Joseph out out of the cistern. Hey, thanks, guys. I know that was a funny joke. Uh-huh. And sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. No one sold a sibling in here, right? 
Can you imagine being the brothers? And you just sold your baby brother, and they've strapped him to the back of a wagon or something, and then he starts rolling away. And he's gone. He's now a slave, and you got 20 pieces of silver. And they went home, and they told their dad, hey, we found, found his jacket. It's got blood all over it, so we think he's dead. And his dad thought he was dead. And for all intents and purposes, he was. Dead to them, dead to their dad. He was gone. They sold their brother. I know your family's messed up. I know my family's messed up. We don't sell each other in my family. You know what I'm saying? Things ain't ever got that, quite that bad yet. You know what I'm saying? I, I know some of your little siblings. I don't think you would sell them. You might want to sometimes. You might want to let someone else borrow them for a few years. But I don't know about sell them. And Joseph ends up in this, this string of terrible events. Can you imagine being Joseph? How many of you have older siblings? How many of you were annoying to your older siblings at any point in your life? Yeah. What if they sold you? <laughs> Showed you, didn't they? What if you're on the back of the wagon and you're like, come on, guys, seriously. I'm not kidding. This isn't cool. And then they didn't help you. Think about the heartbreak. Think about the brokenness, man. Like, your family sold you for some coins. Think about how that would mess you up for good. Where's God in that? How would God allow that to happen to somebody, to be sold by their family? Why wouldn't God just stop that? Why wouldn't God just show up and say, nah, it's a stupid idea, morons, and then just not let it happen in some kind of weird God way, just stop it? I want to remind you that God didn't sell anybody. Brothers did, right? God didn't sell Joseph, did he? Was God standing there a part of the, a part of the brothers and he's like, hey, it's a great idea, bro. Let's do this. Was God, was God, in any, was, was God involved in the decision-making process? Did they consult God about their decision? No. God didn't have anything to do with that. God didn't sell Joseph into slavery. God didn't have anything to do with it. I wasn't consulted, and if he had been, I'm pretty sure Joseph wouldn't have been sold. But since he wasn't, and he was, then do we, is it really fair for us to ask why that's God's fault? Because it doesn't sound like it's God's fault to me. It sounds like it's the brother's fault, doesn't it? See, because evil, evil came into the situation, right? If you're having trouble listening, listen to me. Evil came into the situation because of sin. His brothers sinned and plotted against him in their heart and sold him into slavery in Egypt. God didn't do that. Sin did that. The sin of some brothers brought about a situation. It's not God's fault. It's sin's fault. See, in Genesis 3, God creates, or Genesis 2, God creates human beings. And then um, in Genesis 3, he's given them choice. All right? You got Adam and Eve in the garden, and he's given them choice. He's given them free will. Do you know what free will means? It's the ability to choose to do right or to do wrong, to do whatever's, whatever you want to do. And God's given them that free will because God didn't want to create a bunch of robots. What's the point of creating a bunch of robots? If you're going to force a bunch of people to have a relationship with you, that's weird, dude. Like, if you're, if you're hey, remember like uh, being in preschool and um, there was like those two people that, like one like, little kid that wanted to have a boyfriend or a girlfriend real bad. And he would like, I had this bully little girl. 
in, in like kindergarten or something. I don't know. I was real small because I was and am, whatever. And there was girls, right? And they're like, say you love me. I love you a lot, <laughs> you know, because it's kindergarten and you're about to get pushed down and you're going to cry about it. So, but is that helpful, right? If you, if you try to like, if you were to try to pin somebody into dating you and, and you just annoy the fool out of them and they finally take you on a date, are you really going to feel good about that? If there's, if you're a guy in the room and you just annoy a girl to death, which some of you do, stop it. Quit texting her. If she doesn't text you back, quit. You're annoying. Anyway, you send 7,000 text messages to this girl, and she's finally like, oh my goodness, fine, all right? You can buy me a piece of pizza or whatever it is you need to do where I can tell you that I've given you a restraining order and you can't ever talk to me again, all right? But is that, is that beneficial to you? Are you gonna feel real good about that piece of pizza? If you've pestered a girl into finally going out with you and she sits there and stares at the moon until you leave her alone, is that really gonna be good? Are you really gonna be excited about that at the end of the night? No. Forcing somebody in a relationship with you is not a relationship. That's just weird. God didn't want to force us into a relationship. He gave us the option. He gave us the, the capacity for good. He gave us the capacity to follow him. But by giving us that capacity, he also gave us the capacity not to follow him. Hey, listen to me. He also gave us the capacity not to follow him. By giving us the capacity to, God, by giving me the choice to, that means he had to give me the choice not to. Right? That's the whole issue of free will. And in Genesis 3, we see them exercising that free will not to follow God, but to break his trust, to break fellowship, to break relationship with God. And we see sin come into the world for the first time. Sin didn't enter the world because of God. Sin entered the world because of sin. God didn't bring evil into the world. God made the capacity for evil to enter the world, and people chose to bring it in. God created the capacity for evil to exist so that you and I could have free will. He didn't create evil and like stick it out there and it's his fault. His fault. Man, I'm choking. Does that make sense? Do you understand how free will gives you the option for evil? Nod or shake your head no. Kind of getting it? You're a little bit confused? All right, we'll keep going. We'll try. We'll try to help you out. So back in Genesis 37, we got this idea of free will. And these, these brothers, they exercise free will that God gave. He gave the option to obey and the option not to obey. They exercise the option not to obey and they sell their brother. He goes to Egypt, and he's working at a guy named Potiphar's house, and um, he's doing a good job. He's doing the right things. He's trying to be a good guy. And then uh, because of the lies of Potiphar's wife, he gets thrown in jail. He's in jail for a while. Great. Now I've been sold into slavery, and now I'm in prison in a land where no one knows where I am. And uh, let's make the best out of that. So he's continuing to try to follow God. He's exercising that free will, trying to obey and there's a, uh, the Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker in prison one day because Pharaohs can do what they want and they threw him in prison. And uh, he interprets some dreams for those guys and says, hey, uh, you, you're getting out and you, Pharaoh's gonna kill you. And then Pharaoh let that guy out and killed that dude. And the guy who got out a couple of years later, Pharaoh had some weird dreams. And he's like, man, I wish there was somebody to interpret this dream for me. And he remembered that the guy back in prison a few years earlier had interpreted this dream for him. So they, they call out Joseph and Joseph interprets the dreams of Pharaoh. And basically says, hey man, what your dream meant was that there's gonna be this famine and a whole bunch of people are gonna die. There's gonna be some years of plenty beforehand, so you really should store up as much as you can before to, to provide for the famine. And Pharaoh's like, dude, I don't even know what you're talking about, but it seems like you're pretty smart. So Pharaoh takes Joseph, the guy who was sold by his brothers, and puts him in charge of everything in Egypt. He's the number two guy behind Pharaoh. He just runs everything. He stores up all this stuff and uh, food so that when the famine comes, people aren't just starving to death. 
And Joseph's providing for tens of thousands of people, providing food for them, including his brothers. And his brothers come and they're buying food literally from Joseph and he sees them and he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And Joseph could have had them killed. He could have had retribution right then and there, but he didn't. He provided for his entire family's well-being, kept all of them alive because he found himself in a position where he could. And this series of events goes on. His whole family ends up moving to Egypt to live with, with him and so he can take care of them. And his father dies. And after his father's death, his brothers get really concerned because they're afraid that now Joseph finally is going to take out his vengeance on them because of what they had done. And this is what Joseph said in Genesis 50, 19. Joseph said to him, don't fear. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that, that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So don't fear, I'll provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. Do you hear what Joseph said? You meant evil against me but God meant it for good. Joseph looks back across his whole life. Ten decades and decades of time has passed. And Joseph's seen a lot of terrible things, but he's also seen God move in some pretty miraculous ways. And he's able to look back and say, listen, that day when I was a little kid and you sold me into slavery, that's kept tens of thousands of people alive. And it was a terrible day and you were wrong. But God moved inside of the brokenness of that moment and brought about something great. He said, God didn't put me into slavery. (laughs) You meant evil against me. They chose to do something wrong. They chose evil. And then God shows up and brings something beautiful out of it. Because that's what God does. He brings redemption to the broken. Sometimes we feel like Suffering in the world is completely pointless. But God is at work in the brokenness. He's at work after sin, like in Joseph's situation. And he's at work in the random, like typhoons and stuff like cancer. Man, my family was a jacked up mess before my mom had cancer. My parents weren't believers. They they were never in church. I I don't really understand how I ended up in church and how I became a Christian, Um, but by the grace of God, I did. And there's this one little Christian kid. I'm I'm my only child, and I've got my two two parents and my grandmother lived at my house with me, and it was like cats and dogs all the time. Like We had one of those houses where cops showed up sometimes, pretty often, because people are out in the front yard going nuts and fighting each other, and it was crazy, like full-out crazy town. That's where I lived all the way through elementary school, all the way through middle school, Through high school, I'm out in the front yard trying to get my parents to quit fighting. Police cars show up, people go to jail, it was a mess. Then my mom gets cancer. And God sets in this series of events that brings salvation to my family, brings restoration to a marriage and my relationship with my parents. My parents are basically church planters in Tuscaloosa. Like my parents make me look like a heathen. They're some of the coolest people I know. I'm 28. That was 10 years ago. They're completely, they're unrecognizable people from who they were before my mom was diagnosed with cancer. And I, dude, I'll tell you that my mom might, have been, might be in better health today if she hadn't had cancer, but my parents would be broken up. My dad's probably be in jail somewhere and they wouldn't be believers. They'd be lost for eternity. Now, I'm not saying that God caused my mom to have cancer, but I'm saying that he used it. 
think sometimes it's just hard for us to see the whole plan. I mean, I, I, I prayed for my family for like my entire life, ever since I knew how to pray. I prayed, I remember being a little kid and kneeling down in my bedroom at night and saying, God, will you fix my family? You ever prayed that? And you feel like he's just saying no or something. He's just not answering you. And then 15 years later or whatever, God starts to move and do something and never would have been the path that I would expect it. But in hindsight, looking back, that's what God used. God used something as terrible as cancer to restore my family. Dude, I can't, I can't tell you what the exact game plan is. Same way that when Matt or Taylor walks in this room and there's all this chaos going on around, they have no idea what's happening, right? You're just trying to figure stuff out, man. You're like, somebody's clapping next to a window. I don't know what you're doing. Taylor's like trying to throw things behind plastic shields. I, I mean, sometimes you don't know the whole plan, but there is a purpose. And in a long enough timeline, the purpose starts to make a little bit of sense. Uh, I'm, I'm, okay, when, when you're clapping, I'm supposed to do this thing. There, there's a plan that this isn't just completely random, right? Taylor's, you, you, at one point in there, you said, hey, are you just making this up? Yeah. And sometimes you kind of feel like God really doesn't have a plan in all this, that there's really no point, that there's just, that life is hard sometimes, and God's just either not there, or he's not able to move, he's not able to do anything. And you're like, is there a plan in all of this? By the authority of God's word, Yes. I don't know what the game plan is for your situation. I don't understand the game plan for things like typhoons and stuff all the time. I don't. But I can tell you by the authority of God's word that he is moving and he's active. It's just not always on our timeline. That even if the redemption of things doesn't come until the end of days when God restores all things unto himself, reconciling all things, us and the, all of creation, back to the way it should have been. He gets the glory for fixing the broken at the very end. Dude, I don't know. I don't know what the game plan is, but I do know that God is at work. I do know that God allowed sin to come into the world, but didn't cause it himself. See, I think the foundational thought is this, that if, if God doesn't move and fix your thing, then God doesn't care about you. That's the thought. If God doesn't fix your family, then God doesn't care about you or doesn't love you and you, you, you can't trust God because he hasn't done something. But he has. I, I don't know, always know the reason why something happens, but I do know the reason, I, I know at least one reason that's not right. The reason is never that God doesn't love you or doesn't care about you. That's never the reason. You wanna know why? Because God chose suffering on your behalf. God sent his son here to bleed and die on a cross, taking your sin on himself. God chose to suffer for you. I know stuff's hard sometimes. I know sometimes it's hard to figure out where God is in the situations of your life. Dude, I've been there time and time again, but I'm always reminded of the fact that God loved me enough to send his son that he may not have acted and, and somehow stepped in and fixed my situation yet or something, that, that God has allowed sin to enter the world and brokenness to enter the world, but he has also come into the world, all up into our mess and experienced suffering beyond any suffering I've ever, ever, ever experienced and ever will experience. Christ suffered more than I'm ever going to suffer for us. So I don't know the reason why everything happens. I just don't, but I do know that it's not because of a lack of love our concern for us. Because he poured out his love and concern on the cross. That was the best thing he could ever done. What if God 
fixed my, my situations. And when, when things are hard for me, he, he stepped in and fixed every little thing, but didn't offer me eternal security. Never restored a relationship to me. Would that be worth it? See, God's already given me the greatest gift he could ever give me. And if he goes beyond that, fantastic. I'm not, I'm not searching for a plan and that sort of thing. I'm not trying to figure out every one of God's moves, but I'm trusting that he has one because he proved that he loved me on the cross. So students, man, if you're not a believer in the room tonight um, and you're maybe one of those five or 10 or 15 or whoever in the room that would say, the existence of suffering and evil in the world really throws me off. I'm really not sure how God can exist if evil exists. Well, sin exists because God gave us free will. And we choose using that free will, sin sometimes. Does it mean God brought sin into the world? That means we brought it into the world. I do know that God is at work in the brokenness, restoring all creation and restoring you, calling you back to him by giving you Jesus on the cross. And if you don't have a relationship with God yet, that's the best gift he ever could have given you. And if you haven't accepted it, then it's waiting on you. The gift of eternal salvation in Jesus Christ is waiting on you, waiting for you to accept it. You can do that tonight. I mean, when we're done, we're gonna do some stuff with forms and stuff in Greenhouse, but when we're doing all that, there's gonna be a bunch of leaders in here. You can come find me or anybody else after Greenhouse and say, hey, can we talk? And we'll go sit somewhere warm and drink some coffee and talk. We're always available for that. And if you are a Christian in the room, man, I hope that, I hope that hearing, uh, again, the story of Joseph in a little bit different way was helpful. I hope that having some answers for some of your friends who have, a, have an issue with problem of evil, I hope that's helpful for you. Um, and I hope it just strengthens your faith a little bit, that God is at work, that God has offered his best, and he is still working on our behalf. One of the interesting things, um, as I was prepping for this, I almost, uh, I almost talked about Job a lot. Um, Job experienced incredible suffering, right? And then called God into question and then figured out his mistake. And I love, it, I love how the end of the story of Job, uh, how, how Job ends up, where God shows up and just, and just reminds Job of who he is that he is faithful, that he is moving, and he is just. And he comforts Job, and he restores things, and something beautiful happens. I want to be in that. When things are hard for me, I want to be in that moment. That, that, that moment at the end of Job where, where Job remembers who God is, where he chooses to remain faithful, and God can comfort him with his presence. The presence of God is an interesting thing. Um, in the book of Jonah, when Jonah turns away from God and chooses sin with that free will, chooses to run away from God, the Bible says that, that he, he left God's presence. He left God's presence. So for me, when I'm experiencing difficult times, I want to exercise that free will to remain in God's presence, to remain in the will and the rule of God. I want to remain in God's presence. So students, maybe for you, you're in the middle of suffering and you're a little bit like Job who's calling God into question, I want to encourage you to remain faithful, to remain in that presence of God. Not turning and running the way Jonah did, but remaining in. As our band comes up, we're, I think the last, I hope the last song is a, is a song where we're, we're talking about the presence of God. 
and how we want to remain in the presence of God, unlike Jonah, but more like Job. So that's you today, man, and you're facing something difficult like Jonah and Job. I want to encourage you to remain in that presence the way Job did rather than turn and run. God didn't cause your situation. God didn't break up your family. God didn't bring sin into the world. But he's at work in the midst of it to bring about something beautiful. I want to pray for you. And then I want you to worship with us. Father, I love you. We love you. And God, we're just being honest, man. There's, there's some times that things are so hard in our world that um, it's difficult to see the plan. But you haven't promised us to always see the plan. You've promised us that you're at work. So I just ask that you would forgive us when we call you into question. That you would help us to remain faithful. That when difficult times come and hard things happen, that we'd remember that you are the one who offered us your very best on the cross. That you were at work for our benefit and our behalf. God, help us to be the people that you've called us to be. It's your son's name, pray. Amen. Stand with us.